If you want to open your Bible and turn to John chapter 10. Uh, if you don't have a physical copy of the, the Bible, go ahead and Google John chapter 10. Uh, you'll end up someplace good, I bet. I've been tracing our family name lately. I had heard that uh, old people do that. And then uh, last week I was like, you know what? I want to find out where I came from. And so I guess I'm old now uh, because I, not only did I do it, but I have been enjoying it very, very much. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, you got lots of family. I don't know, you may feel totally alone, but uh, you got a family tree and that family tree is pretty big. And so uh, it's been really interesting to, you know, there are people that you know, there are some stories that you know, but you eventually get into some things that you didn't know. And some of your ancestors have lots of stories and some are just a, a name and a little parentheses, born this date and died uh, that date. But um, in order for a family tree to, to work, there has to be somebody before and there has to be somebody after. And so I've just been thinking about that, you know, because Bayou City uh, Tomball is probably six months old, something like that. And uh, it came from somewhere and it's going to go somewhere. But the only way that it goes somewhere, the only way that this church has a future with people filling up these, these seats, ideally, is if you know where you came from spiritually and there's somebody who's going to follow you. And I think that most of us are grateful and understand the where we came from piece. You can even think about right now uh, people in your life who uh, helped you understand the scripture and more importantly even helped you understand the gospel and the good news of Christ. We thank God for them. Maybe it was a pastor or a Sunday school teacher, maybe a coworker, a friend, family member, spouse. Um, but I think the part that's a little bit harder is the can I pass that down? And I want to say that you can. And not only you can, but you should. And not only that you should, but it is a mandate from the living God that you and I would, um, that the tree would not stop with us. And so you may not feel incredibly qualified today. Maybe you just consider yourself just a kind of a normal person. And I want to say that you're the best possible candidate to continue the family of faith. And so as we think about the gift that Tom, so I mean, that was a sermon, by the way, I need to just get in and out. Uh, that was amazing. Uh, I don't have any props. So last time I brought props, I brought props, but not this time. Anyway, so just wanted to say that I'm super insecure in following Pastor Tom, as any of us would be. But as you think about that gift that we've received and celebrated today, uh, uh, you should really think about who am I going to pass that on to? Um, who's going to be underneath me in the family tree? And, uh, and, and, and I think that's the best possible future for our church. So John chapter 10, that was for free. That was a little digression. What do you call a digression before you start? It's a, a progression. I'm not sure. 
John chapter 10, Jesus has been talking about being the good shepherd. And in verse 22, it says, then he came, then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was in the temple courts of Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. So Jesus is in the temple and there, there was the inner courts of the temple and around that was a plaza. And so Jesus is in that plaza that was known as Solomon's Colonnade. And some religious leaders come up to him and they say, hey, are you the Messiah? Would you just tell us yes or no? And John takes time to tell us in verse 22 that it was at the time of the festival of dedication. Now on the surface, you may not know what that is, but actually you do know what that is because we call it Hanukkah today. So a couple of hundred years before Jesus was born, around the first century uh, in Israel, you remember Alexander the Great, his empire split. He was only 30 uh, years old, a little more than 30 years old when he passed away. And so after he did, there was nobody to inherit his empire. And so it sort of split in three ways. And one of those three uh, took over this part of the world that we're talking about today. So it was kind of centered in what we now know as Syria. And it had its tentacles, its authority and power kind of in every direction, including Israel. And one of the would-be emperors who was ruling that splinter of Alexander the Great's kingdom was a man named Epiphanes. Now he had given himself that name or someone had given it to him that he received and took on. It, it essentially was him, himself saying, I am a God and I want to be treated as a God. And so you can imagine how somebody who believed themselves to be a God felt about the temple in Jerusalem. And so he took his idols uh, that really only served a purpose of honoring him and increasing his fame and influence in the world. He took those idols and he put them in the temple there in Jerusalem. Now, there was not a greater offense to God's people because God's people, Israel, they believe that their God, Yahweh, uh, Jehovah, he is the God of all gods. He is the one true God. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. How offensive is it that some statue would-be God behind it is placed in the temple of the living God? But the people of Israel, they were ruled by this particular splinter cell of Alexander the Great's empire. And, and so they really couldn't do anything about it other than be upset. But there, there came a point... Uh, there, there was some other offense. This is probably 120, 130 years before Jesus was born uh, where uh, some of the Jewish people, they just couldn't take it any longer and they fought back. And when they fought back, they, they won a little bit. But they knew, hey, we're just a little band of brothers here. Uh, we can't fight this empire. And so they escaped up into the mountains. And what they found out was people were so excited to fight back uh, to have a little control over them, th th their land and their own lives, that they went up into the mountains to meet them. And so what became just a rebellion of a few people actually became uh, quite a successful rebellion. And for a hundred years, the Jewish people actually ruled themselves. It had been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years since they had done that, since the Babylonians had come during the time of what we call our Old Testament and taken over Jerusalem. It had been since then that Israel had been able to rule themselves. But for a period of 100 years, um, they were free. Uh, those people who led that rebellion, you've heard of them before. They were called the Maccabees. 
And so their time of leadership came to an end with the Romans. The Romans came in and then Rome was in charge of the rest of the world, including Israel. And so the people, though, in Jesus' day, they remembered that time really fondly because it was their great-grandfathers and great-great-grandfathers and mothers who had experienced that freedom, and they really longed for it. So here comes Jesus, and Jesus is, well, he's doing some of the things that the Maccabees did. Uh, He's not afraid to tell the truth, whether it's a Jewish religious leader or a Roman governor or a Israeli governor. He doesn't care. He'll tell the truth to anybody. And guess where he did a lot of his ministry? up in the mountains outside of Jerusalem and in northern Israel. And so you can understand why these religious leaders are saying to him, hey, will you just tell us yes or no? Are you the Messiah? Are you the spiritual descendant of the Maccabees during the festival of dedication? Verse 25, Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said to you, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Now, Jesus had offended them, and so they tried to kill him. And I, I, how many of you were on the speech and debate team? Anybody want to be bold about that? Yeah, you're not sure where I'm going with it, so you're like, I don't know, maybe. Jesus is using a rhetorical tactic here uh, as he's debating with these religious leaders because he quotes uh, Psalm chapter 82, verse 6, and he's not preaching a sermon out of Psalm 82, 6. In fact, if you go and read it later in your spare time, which I know all of you are going to do, you'll see that really what Psalm 82, verse 6 is about has nothing to do with what Jesus is talking about here. But they're upset at him because he has claimed to be one with the Father. And so they're trying to stone him because he is claiming to be God. And he knows that they know the law, or at least they pretend to know the law. And he says to them, hey, in Psalm chapter 82, verse 6, we, humanity, are referred to as gods. Now, Jesus is not making a point. We are not gods. There is one true God. We are human beings created in the image of God. Jesus knows this. He's not saying that one day we're all going to be gods uh, when we pass away. He's just using a rhetorical uh, debate strategy to say, listen, you guys think you know so much. You're trying to kill me because I claim to be the son of God. Your scripture, which you know, uh, it calls all of us the sons and daughters of God. So really leave me alone. That's my summary of what Jesus is saying. But it did not work because he ended that section by saying, the Father is in me and I in the Father. And that is not uh, something 
that a regular person would have said. So they tried to seize him and he escaped their grasp. Verse 40, then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. So Jesus escapes to what we would consider the wilderness. That was where his ministry began. When John the Baptist baptized him in the Jordan River and the heavens opened up, the Spirit of God descended in the form of a dove and God spoke out of heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Remember, they are trying to kill him because he is claiming to be God's unique son. So where does he go? He goes to the place where God said out loud, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And uh, Turns out, just like the Maccabees were surprised that people gathered to them up in the mountains, um, people go out to the wilderness near the Jordan River to gather around Jesus. And even though they maybe don't understand exactly what's going to happen, they believe that he truly is the Messiah. As we've been going through the Gospel of John for what has seemed like an eternity, and we're only at chapter 10, we're not even halfway through, that's so discouraging. Uh, We have seen this pattern, and maybe you've noticed it. There's some backdrop. John gives us some context, some location for the things that are happening. Uh, Jesus says something offensive, and they try to kill him. So we see that pattern here again at the end of John chapter 10. So let's dive in to what it was that Jesus said for which they tried to stone him. That starts in verse 25. Jesus answered, I did tell you. Remember, they've asked him, if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. So they want to know, Jesus, just tell us the truth. Are you the Messiah or are you not the Messiah? And Jesus says, I have told you the truth. And they're like, you haven't told us the truth. Just say yes or no. And he says, I have told you the truth. I have said yes or no. And I did it through my works. Now let's look together at what these works are. Let's start in John chapter two. So we're literally gonna flip through every page of John, which is not gonna take us long because again, we're just in chapter 10. And we're gonna trace the works of Jesus. The first miracle Jesus does is the beginning of John chapter two. If you have a Bible, I would love for you to turn uh, with me so you can see it for yourself. John chapter two, Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding in Cana. That was the first of his miracles in the gospel of John. Then you turn the page through John chapter two, John chapter three, Jesus meets Nicodemus in the middle of the night or at nighttime away from the crowds. That's where we get the famous verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John chapter four, Jesus meets the woman at the well and he does another great work there. He tells her things about herself that he should not have known. Remember, he says to her, go and tell your husband things I've told you, go and get him. And she says, I'm, I, I, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, actually, you've had a lot of husbands and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. And she's blown away by that. How on earth did you know that? So she goes back into town to bring more people out to the well to meet Jesus. And her reason for, hey, come with me is this guy knows things that he should not have known. It was a great work. Later on in John chapter four, Jesus heals an official's son. John chapter 5, he heals a man who could not walk. This man would go and sit by a pool in Jerusalem, thinking that if an angel stirred up the water and he was the first one in, uh, he would be healed. Uh, but the problem was he couldn't walk. He couldn't get himself to the water in time, and Jesus heals him. Jesus gives him the ability 
to walk. John chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 plus people up in the mountains. Also in John chapter 6, Jesus walks across the water. In the rest of John chapter 6, Jesus talks about how he is the true bread of life. The bread, and life wasn't, bread of life wasn't the manna uh, of the Israelites, nor was it the fish and the loaves up in the mountains. He is the bread of life. John chapter 7, Jesus goes to Jerusalem. He's teaching. John chapter 8, he does more of the same. In John chapter 9, he heals a man who was born blind. And it's really out of this miracle that all of John chapter 10 is happening. So when Jesus says, I have been telling you that I am the Messiah, I've been doing these works, these are the works that, that he's talking about. But they, they couldn't hear it. And he says, you couldn't hear it because you're not my, my sheep. You know, when we get into a tough spot, I think our instinct is we we want to trust God through it but we ask for a little bit of extra motivation to trust it's like Gideon in Judges chapter 6 the Midianites are oppressing the people of Israel and Gideon is actually doing some chores but he's hiding because he's afraid of the Midianites and an angel of the Lord appears to him and says you're going to be the general of God's people you're going to rescue them from the hand of the Midianites and the Midianites were very very powerful and Gideon is like I don't no no not me then he gives his uh, uh, don't choose me resume you ever done that to God here's the long list of reasons why you got the wrong person. And the angel says, no, you're the right person. And Gideon says, well, I need some proof. Now you would think the angel of the Lord speaking to you be enough proof, but not for Gideon. Gideon says, okay, here's the deal. I'm gonna lay this uh, towel, uh, fleece on the ground. If the uh, towel is dry, but the ground around it is wet with dew, Um, that will be a miracle because the towel should be wet if the ground is wet I'll I'll trust God and I'll do what what I'm instructed and so sure enough that happens and Gideon is like well what I meant was I want you to do that one thing but then let's just for safety now I want the towel to be wet but there to be no dew on the ground so the ground is dry towel is wet angel of the Lord do you get the instructions and sure enough the same thing happens now again At some point, Gideon should just have been like, okay, I'm skeptical, but okay. But he didn't. He said, God, I'm going to need you to prove it to me. And God does. And then he says, but I need you to prove it to me again. If we started over here to my right and we just went person by person, person by person, and just said, just off the top of your head, can you just think about it for two minutes and list all of the answered prayers that you've had in your life? I mean, we would be here for weeks by the time we got over here. You remember when we had real cameras and we, (laughs) and uh, Amanda and I have no pictures from our honeymoon, uh, 17, no, not, I don't know, I don't know how long I've been married, 17, 17 years ago, um, because we took disposable cameras and it's, I mean, it's just a lot of work. So we took a lot of and then lost the camera because you had to follow up and get them printed 
right? Um, and then what do you do with the prints? You put them in a photo book and you fill up the book and then you put the book away and you never get it out again unless somebody comes over to your house in which they are like, hey, tell me about that time when you were 18 and you went to Florida and sure enough, you, you pull it out, but you gotta have a reason, right? We do the same thing with answered prayer. We're like, oh, this is so great. This is such a great time. I wanna remember this forever. And then we put it in a book and we put it on a shelf and we forget. So then we come to a crisis of belief and we need to trust God because we've forgotten the last time he did something great for us, we have to say, well, I need you to give me a little extra motivation. I need you to prove it to me again. It reminds me of when I was a kid playing basketball in our front yard. And before you go in, you would pretend that it was the last final seconds of the game and you had the ball. And if you made it, you won. And if you missed it, you lost. You remember this? And, and three, two, one, and you let it fly. And almost always, clank. I got fouled. And then you got a do-over. Three, two, one, you let it fly. And, and you do it. You get as many do-overs as you want until you get the outcome that you want. And I think at the heart of it, that's why we want God to prove himself. Because we want everything on our terms. And we will just keep asking God to jump through our hoops until we get the outcome that we want, which for most of us is just it fixed and not to have to trust God through the darkness anyway. Jesus says, I have been telling you these things. I have been telling you I am the Messiah, but you can't hear me because you are not my sheep. What was the best Halloween costume that you had as a kid? Just think about it. This is a rhetorical question, please, no answers. <laughs> just think about it for just a second. Whatever you were, you were a pirate. You were a pirate from, for Halloween, but you weren't actually a pirate. You, know? you were a mummy. You were a mummy for Halloween. You weren't actually buried in a pyramid in Egypt, right? It was just a costume. If we had looked at these religious leaders this day that Jesus is talking to them, they looked like sheep. The true people of God. Their behavior lined up, their passions lined up. But Jesus said, you're not sheep. You have a sheep costume. Some of us have a sheep costume. Our grandma gave it to us. She, she told us to come to church and this is how you should act and this is what you should do and this is what you should care about. But only probably you and God know today if you are a sheep. Thankfully, Jesus goes on to describe how you can know that you're a sheep. Verse 27, my sheep listen to my voice I know them and they follow me. So when Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice, think about uh, an animal uh, that is alerted to some noise. Now, not cats, because cats never do anything that they're supposed to do or you want them to do. But if you have a good dog and somebody comes to the house uh, before you know, 
that someone is there before your little video doorbell picks it up and sends you a message on your phone. Your dog already knows that somebody's at the front door and their ears go whoosh, and maybe they even run over. Right? It, when an animal hears something, it gets their attention and they get into active listening posture. So when Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, remember he's talking as a shepherd and the picture from last week, if you remember, is if you were a shepherd, you were living this nomadic lifestyle, but you wouldn't always want to stay out in the field. And so you would come to the edge of the village and somebody would own a pin and you could essentially like a, a tombstone, the, the, the shootout at the OK Corral, you couldn't just take your your horse up into the uh, saloon hotel, you had to drop it off in the corral. Well, lots of people had their horses out there. Lots of people had their sheep out in the pen outside the village. You're a shepherd. You entrusted it to the gatekeeper out there. And in the morning you would come back and you would only want your sheep. You wouldn't want the sheep or the other shepherds. And Jesus said that the sheep know the shepherd's voice. So when that shepherd calls out his sheep, because they know his voice, I'm ready to listen. You've got my attention. One of the ways that you know that you are a true sheep and not just somebody in a sheep costume is are you in ready position to hear the voice of the Lord? When you read the scripture, do you read it as if somebody who is actually listening? My sheep listen. I know them and they follow me. So not only am I listening, I want to do what the shepherd says. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. John has used this word perish before in John chapter 3 verse 16 again. You remember math uh, when we would learn the greater than, less than symbols, you know what I'm talking about? There is a math formula in the scripture. Um, death is greater than mortal life. And we just need to come to terms with that today. Uh, death will eventually win over your life and my life. It's gonna happen. But the hope of the gospel is that eternal life is greater than death. The last couple of months, I had the real honor and privilege of walking with one of our church members up to the end of his life. He had some pretty aggressive um, cancer. And, you know, you got to wrestle for your peace when you're having to make tough decisions about your own life and, uh, and when to give up and say, I've fought the good fight and I've finished the race and when to keep on fighting. And, and so one day I was in the hospital with him and, and I said, you know, I've been thinking a lot about it. And... Uh, your death, which he knew was imminent, it's going to last a real long time for us and for your family. Uh, they'll wrestle with this and this will be hard on them for the rest of, of their lives. But for you, death is going to be a millisecond. Have you thought about that? We, we are so afraid of death. It's like the number one thing that we are trying to avoid at all times. But for us, those who die or are dying, it's like a, as quick as it happens, it's over. That's what Jesus was able to say to the thief on the cross. Today, we'll be in paradise. There's no waiting, no hanging out. That's why the apostle Paul in Philippians chapter one says, if I uh, am killed at the end of this prison sentence, 
that's all right, I'll be with the Lord. Because eternal life is greater than death. So the third part of the equation then is if eternal life is greater than death and death is greater than mortal life, then our eternal life should be greater than our mortal life. And that's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth in your mortal life where moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal, but store up for your treasures in heaven, in eternal life where no thieves can get in and no moth or rust can destroy that because eternal life is greater than death and eternal life is greater than mortal life. That's how Je- why Jesus is able to say uh, there is no perishing when you're his sheep. That's why he's able to say to Mary and Martha uh, at Lazarus' death, uh, I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, though you may die, yet you will live. It's a crazy statement, but it's true because he has defeated death, given us eternal life, so our death is over as fast as it began. If you're a sheep. Then he says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. And that's really a sentence that gets him in big trouble. I and the father are one. He's saying, I and the father are of one essence. We are of one being. We are distinct. I am the son and he is the father, but we are one. We share one purpose. So when I hold you in my hand, the father is also holding you in his hand and no thief, remember he's a shepherd, no thief can get into the pen and steal you because I have you. The scripture talks a lot about the hands of God. Um, Isaiah chapter 49 says that the names of God's people, I think that includes our names today, are engraved on the palms of his hands. Uh, He upholds us by his right hand. Isaiah chapter 41, also Psalm 63 verse 8 says that. Um, His hand laid the foundations of the earth, Isaiah 48 he has a mighty arm and a strong hand, Psalm 89, 13. We are like clay in the potter's hand, Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 6. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore, Psalm 16, 8 through 11. His hand delivers us, Psalm 138, verse 7. He rescued Israel from slavery, Deuteronomy chapter 7. And the scripture continues that theme with Jesus. I'd encourage you to read the gospels. If you got like eight hours, that's probably how it would take you to read all four books. I'm sure you got that for kind of free time uh, around You'll notice Jesus' hands are always referenced. He's always reaching out his hand. He's always touching somebody with his hand. Here are a few examples. He touched a leper. Uh, He touched Peter's mother-in-law when she was sick with the fever. Uh, He uh, laid his hands on someone and healed them. He took a little girl who was dead by the hand and lifted her up and she was alive. Uh, He saved Peter who was drowning in the water after he had tried to imitate Jesus walking on the water. Uh, He pulls him up uh, by the hand. He put his hands on a blind man who received his sight. There was a demon-possessed man that Jesus touched. The demon was removed. He touched the eyes of a blind man. He comforted Peter, James, and John on the mountain of transfiguration because the Father rebuked them from heaven. I mean, that's next level. You're in trouble. And it says that they were afraid and Jesus reached out his hand and comforted them. He touched a man's tongue who wasn't able to speak and he healed him. And then one of the final works that he, he did is in the Garden of Gethsemane 
Peter pulls out his sword and chops one of the soldier's ears off. And Jesus reaches down, picks up the ear with his hand, scripture says, and puts it back on, heals the man. So when Jesus says, if you're in my hand, there's no thief. And then if you're in my hand, you're in the Father's hand. Those are good hands to be in. And nothing, no one, no thief can come and snatch you out of that. And I think if you are a good church person, you believe that. The problem is sometimes the thieves, they know they can't get in. So they just circle the pen and say, are you sure you're safe in there? Are you sure that he is a good shepherd? Are you sure these outcomes are all going to fall in your favor? Are you sure this is going to work out? If they can't snatch us from his hand, I think the next best thing is to make us doubt that the hand is a good place to be. And then we will remove ourselves metaphorically. We'll choose not to trust. We'll choose to doubt. And because we've put all of our answered prayer memories in a photo album on a shelf that we can't remember, sometimes that doubt is pretty effective. But Jesus says at the end of the day, you're in my hand, you're in the Father's hand. That's the place that you want to be because I am a good shepherd. And if you believe in me, you will not perish. I take care of my sheep. You know, what's interesting as we close is Jesus said no one will be able to take us, snatch us, uh, but he let himself be taken. After the uh, Lord's Supper, which we celebrated today, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is praying. He knows his hour has come. And so he goes and prays. He takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, a little bit further into the forest with them and he leaves them there. He prays at a distance. He comes back and checks on them. They've fallen asleep like some of you today. And, uh, and then he goes away and comes back. They've fallen asleep. Third time, he goes away, prays, not my will, but your will be done. He comes back, finds them asleep. And, and then he just says, it's too late now. They're coming. And in the distance, coming through the Garden of Gethsemane is what we would call a mob. They've got lanterns, torches, weapons. They've come to arrest Jesus of Nazareth. They've come to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane because even though lots of people didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, they enjoyed his teaching and they didn't want to see him hurt. And so the religious leaders had to scheme with Judas to find Jesus in a private moment so that they could arrest him and they had found it. Judas had helped him and in fact took him there. And now Jesus is being arrested. The end of John's gospel, which I mentioned, we'll get there right before Jesus returns. Uh, it, it, it tells a story and the, he goes to meet the crowd which is more than most of us would do I'd be like well the crowd can meet me somewhere else because I'm out of here but he doesn't he knows his hour has come and so he, he goes to meet the crowd and he asks him a question who are you looking for? And, and they say we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth and the scripture says that he says I am he and they all fall down like the walls of Jericho in the Old Testament, that's a whole mob falls down right there. They get back up. He asks them again, who is it you are looking for? 
Now you would think that they would be like, nobody, we're out of here. I ain't getting paid enough to deal with this. But, but they don't. They dumb. They say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And, and he goes with them. He let himself be taken. And then he suffers. And it's in his suffering that we receive forgiveness of sins. By which Colossians chapter 1 says that we are transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. You don't have to add anything to your sheep costume to get into the protective hand of the good shepherd. Just Jesus, you suffered for me and I receive it. The scripture says, John chapter one, verse 12, that those who believe in him are given the right to be called the sons and daughters of God, the sheep of God. And so if you're wrestling with, am I in the hand? Am I not in the hand? Am I wearing the costume? Am I not wearing the costume? Are you willing to believe today? Are you willing to believe? Let's pray.